Hello and welcome to First Things First from Mercado. Every month, Mercado CEO Rob Garrison explores the future of the supply chain and the impact of the first mile for thousands of importers around the world. Catch up and listen to the series on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you enjoy this next episode. My name is Rob Garrison and it's a pleasure to have you here. This is the final episode of the season. And I'm delighted to introduce Mr. Pete Mento to the show. Uh, I think you're really going to enjoy Pete. Pete's uh, kind of everything there is to do and trade. Uh, Pete has done it. And so we'll have an interesting conversation. I'm going to have him share his background. Um, as always, if you've got any questions, please go feel free to put a note in there and we'll try to address any questions that you've got. Pete's uh, kind of familiar with all things trade and all things really globally. So uh, feel free to leave a comment in the chat. And uh, we'll answer as many as we can. We'll follow up with those as well. And then also, if you want to uh, find out more about Mercado Labs, my company, MercadoLabs.com. And you can also email me directly at Rob Garrison at MercadoLabs.com. Okay, so with that, uh, let's bring Pete Mento into the show. There he is. Hi, Pete. Hey there. How's it going? Thanks uh, for having me on. Yeah, uh, thanks for coming on, Pete. Um, Maybe we could start with this, if you wouldn't mind, Pete. I'd love to have the audience hear a little bit about your background, in particular, uh, in particular during that story. How did you get into this crazy business we call supply chain? I have, uh, for the past 30 years, failed upward in various uh, positions in logistics. <laughs> I've um, one of my favorite descriptions of me was by the former a, f- a former CFO of a very large American logistics firm who said that I was just a failed stand-up comedian with a broker's <laughs> license and that was that's probably my favorite one that I've ever heard um, so the so the best one the best way to describe it is I I went to boat school I was 18 I applied to a bunch of colleges that I was absolutely certain I was going to get into and didn't so kids at home watching Plan B's are very important. I um, I was uh, and my my mother, um, my mother applied to universities without my knowledge. So God wow. rest your soul. Yes, my mother, who's who's not with us anymore, applied to a number of universities, and one of them was a Merchant Marine Academy, way up in the middle of nowhere in Maine, called Maine Maritime Academy. Ah, Which I for, that. that's, yeah. that's amazing that that's how you got your start. That, what a great yeah. way to start this business, right? Yeah. So I went to boat school. I went to school to drive ships and uh, I was a, um, a horrible student. I was a, 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 a ghastly midshipman. I did nothing right. I did absolutely nothing right. I, I, I was not spit and polish. I was disrespectful. Um, I was just mediocre. I was mediocre in every way when it came to being at the academy. Um, I was I was a, a decent lacrosse player. I was a goalie. Um, loved playing rugby. I loved. I ran cross country, which is hard to believe given the mass I take up in the universe now. But I, I ran. Um, but I made I made, I made some amazing friends, and I, I grew up a lot. Like a lot of guys that grew up in the nineteen eighties, I. I was just a moron and thank God there weren't a lot of camera phones or anything. So I, I got away with it. Yeah. My father was a, my father was a spice importer. So I knew a lot about importing and I knew a lot about trade from that. Yeah. So you don't mind my asking, was it uh, in subcontinent or 
yeah, my dad brought most almost everything in from India, um, from the Middle East and from China. So, you know, I, I learned a lot about how that all worked from him. Um, didn't have a whole, my father doesn't have a lot of redeeming qualities, honestly, you know, there's, um, there's a very special corner in hell where he will burn eternally. But, uh, you know, I, I do, I do own part of this, uh, to him. So anyway, I, um, I was a comedian from the time I was in high school. I, I was, I really desperately wanted to be a comic. So I did stand up comedy through high school. I had a fake ID and, oh. um, believe it or not, my name was David Bowie on my fake ID. And I lived at 2727 Stardust Lane. And, um, I did, I just did. Yeah. Oh, Hey, you had to know where you lived. So I, I did, I did a lot of, a lot of, uh, open mics and stuff. I never got paid. I went to so call just to the audience. Did, I don't know if people know. And then I, uh, Pete, Pete also got during that time, Pete's being humble as always, but, uh, some of his associates were Bill Burr and Joe Rogan. If you've ever heard those names. I, I, I open for every person who's famous and rich now. So, um, I, I go, I go to see, I try that. It doesn't work. I, um, I was, I was awful. Like everything I tried to do in my twenties, I sucked at. Uh, so I gave up on it. I, I tried comedy full time and that worked out. So at the time writing comedy at the time, going up and doing stand up, at the time going up on stage and telling my jokes, it actually paid. Okay. It, and when you're, when you're young, like you pay my rent and that worked out well for me, but I wanted more out of my life. So, um, long story short, I, I kind of gave up on the dream and I looked around me and I saw what being a successful comedian meant. And that, that meant barely getting by. That was before people had hundred million dollar contracts to make podcasts and, you know, sneaker deals and stuff to be a comedian. So I, um, applied to a bunch of graduate schools and I got into Harvard, which every time I, yeah, every time I say that, like every time I say that I'm still shocked. I got into a bunch of law schools and I, I realized that being a trade attorney wasn't for me but I did get into Harvard. So um, I moved back to New England at the time I was living in the DC area, Baltimore, DC area. And um, I got a job at Panel Pina, which for the oldsters out there, you'll still remember. It was one of the greatest jobs I've ever had. I, I worked um, Monday through Friday at night, three o'clock, three 30 until 1130. So I could go to class during the day. And then I, I worked at night and yeah. um that yeah, was amazing, man. I, I did airway bills. I routed traffic. I cut entries at night. I answered calls that were late at night. I worked with the warehouse guys who were just total degenerates. They were, they were absolute maniacs. They smoked cigarettes. They got in fights. They argued with truck drivers. And, and I was supposed to be the responsible one. And I was significantly less responsible than those guys were. Um, but that was really like my foothold in the industry. I ended up going to a company called AEI. Which hey, would... Before you go to AEI, just real quick, one of the things that I haven't worked for a European forwarder, but one of the things that I've heard is that that's also a really good way to learn the business, that they take that profession very seriously and they go to a trade school for it ahead of time. Is, was that your experience? Was that why that was a good place to start? One of the best jobs you really learned the business? or I had, I had uh, two really great bosses. So the first was a guy named Marty Gillespie, who I've, I've really lost touch with in the industry. He was a very, very uh, patient guy with me. You know, he was, he wasn't all that much older than me. I think he was in his forties. I mean, okay. I'm in my fifties now. So 20 years older is a lot older, I guess, but he um, was very patient with me, you know, 
and he at the same time knew that I was I was ambitious. So he he definitely gave me a lot of exposure to a lot of things. But at the same time, I worked for a gentleman named Benno Bartoli, who I think may still be in the business. Uh, and he was Swiss, and that that was his station. Mm. And he was not so much demanding as he uh, he had expectations. So he knew that I was not as much of a screw up as maybe I appeared to be. Uh, and he expected a lot of me. It was a great job from that perspective. They, they were always giving me a little more than I think I was ready for. And I, I fortunately rose to the occasion. And I, I mean, I worked with some total assassin veterans at that place. People who had been in the industry for 20, 30 years at that point, 1990, whatever it was, 96, 95, 96. Those are people that have been working, some of them since the 1950s in logistics. Mm-hmm. So just the, the opportunity to learn from them yeah. was incredible. It was just absolutely incredible. And think about it, you know, before then we didn't have email, the cell phones weren't, weren't pervasive. You didn't have a lot of the things that we had now. So you just learn from people who knew what the hell they were doing. And I was smart enough to just shut up and do what I was told, which I think was a pretty, from working on ships, it was a, it was a pretty rare thing from people in my, my generation. So you were um, going, working during the day, going to school at yeah. night. And yeah. you and doing comedy, still doing comedy, and still doing comedy. Holy cow! Yeah. So, I, so yeah. take, take us from there. So you graduated from college, and what was the next big shift? Oh, oh, so then I go to AEI, and I was the account manager for Digital Equipment Corporation, which no one knows what the hell that is, right? But us, right? At so, the time, that was a big dot deal. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And it was a uh, it was an absolutely stupid job. Like it was, it it. it I don't know how to put this. Like it was a, it was a really easy job. It, I couldn't believe I was getting paid to do it. <laughs> like I, when I, um, do you remember the green and white, the green and white bars that you would have on the printout that you would get? Oh yeah. I started in inside, yeah. inside sales. That's what I used to have to use to cold call. Yeah. So I got a green and white lined printout. Yeah. And they were like this wide, right? Yeah. yeah. And it had every single air shipment that we had for them inbound and outbound and then i would call singapore airlines china airlines and a couple other carriers like where's the freight and they tell me i write it down and then i call the people at digital and i tell them where their freight was and i was done till like noon and then and then i would i would set up all the pickups for everything and then i would call again and i would get space for everything Occasionally, something crazy would go wrong, but it was honestly, it was a job I could have done when I was an eighth honest, right? Um, but but I got to meet some incredible people in the industry, and and the most important thing, maybe, maybe you know, that's I'll say the second most important thing happened to me. I met uh, I met a guy named Jerry Peck, who I hope watches this. He watch usually watches things I do. Jerry was the, in charge of consulting at AEI. And he came in to do an audit defense with customs and the old compliance assessment teams for one of AEI's customers. And he was like, um, I need someone to come with me and take notes. And they're like, uh, you see that kid with the goatee over there in the Pixies t-shirt, go grab him. And um, I, 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 you know, I put on a suit and I, I went with, I, I was done. This was it. Like I wanted to do, what Jerry did. And Jerry was like, 
he still kind of is. He's he's hard to describe. He is equal parts brilliant, but very good at making hard things simple to understand. And I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be someone who, when you brought me something that was very hard, you walked away like, wow, Gus's isn't that scary. And and Jerry, Jerry made me feel that way. Like he would take the most complicated thing about compliance and I'd walk out like, I think I understand that, but I always had him to, to fall back on. And then I went into consulting, but he said, there's one rule. You got to pass your broker's exam in six weeks. So I did. I went and I got my license and he moved me down to Connecticut. We would eventually go to KPMG uh, where in a very short amount of time, I ended up having my own practice. I was a senior manager. And this is before I was 30, you know. Um, I was a senior manager before I was 30. I think I was 28, maybe. Um, living in Manhattan, just, you know, it was incredible. It was during the 90s, during the dot-com boom, just taking out clients and signing things. And 9-11 um, happened. I actually, I got, I got married. And on my honeymoon, 9-11 happened. Oh, no. And uh, going to take a job with another tax firm. And I met a guy named Phil Coughlin, who was at Expeditors. Yeah. And um, Phil convinced me to go to work at Expeditors for $100,000 less than Ernst Young was going to pay me. Um, I was supposed to move to Amsterdam. Nope, you're moving to Peabody, Massachusetts. (laughs) The woman I had just married worked in theater. Like she was a musical, she worked in musical theater. She did like Broadway and stuff, you know? And she's going to leave. New York and Connecticut and like move to Boston where there's nothing. Uh, But man, he taught me how to run a business. So it wasn't how to, how to give people advice. It was how to run a business. And I met me, they were former customs guys that really completely changed my, my view of how you work with customs. You make them, you make them part of the solution and you respect them and you stop treating them like adversaries. And it completely changed me. But those three men changed me. And to this day, I don't make a big decision without Colin Phil first. He's so important to me. I uh, was there for a very long time. And, and, you know, for me, I jump around a lot. So I was there for about eight years and had my daughter. Um, I, 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 I left there to go to CH Robinson because I didn't think I was ever going to be anything but the principal of trade one. And that wasn't enough for me. So at Robinson, I was the VP of Global Customs, really built up their customs practice. I, uh, uh, and that was part of the acquisition of Phoenix. We just could not get along. I left, and then six weeks after I left, he got fired. So in retrospect, really dumb decision on my part. Um, <laughs> and you know, over, over time, what's really happened is I've, I've worked in, in tax firms, with my own practices, defending people in audits, recovering tariffs, recovering duties all over the world. I've been the VP of other uh, customs groups. And then recently I went to Wayfair where I had a pretty cool job. We had our own freight forwarding firm there. We did logistics exclusively for, and when I left, um, you know, we had, we had purchased enough containers for 280,000 TEUs. We were, we were managing everything for just those suppliers. So it was, it was an you know, amazing opportunity. I got to work with just some brilliant people who were by leaps and bounds, much, much smarter than me. And I had a team, man. When I tell you that the people that I worked with, 
these men and women, the young men and women I worked with that, that made me so happy to come to work every day. That's amazing. They were hardworking people. And um, back in September, like a lot of folks at Wayfair, most of the leadership of my group was, we got the Dear John or Dear Jane letter. Hey, you've never won the lottery, but you kind of won one today. Um, don't come to work in a couple of months because you got laid off. Ding, 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 ding. So um, I got a severance package and, um, you know, thanks for your service, but we're going in a different direction. It's kind of like how Pete Best might have felt when they replaced him with Ringo. And uh, <laughs> uh, with the beat. And I got laid off. But I'll tell you, man, I, I got my first job offer three days after I got laid off. You know, um, it, 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 to have a bunch of say that there was a place for me. And now I have an incredible opportunity to work with a company that was founded at Traffic Tech. We were founded in Canada 35 years ago. We're a multi-billion dollar global freight forwarding and logistics firm. The supply chain is facing its biggest period of instability in 50 years. Businesses need change, and with that change comes value. Subscribe to updates on the latest news impacting the industry directly from Mercado CEO and industry veteran Rob Garrison. And discover how innovation is challenging the status quo and saving an industry on the brink of disruption. Head over to MercadoLabs.com forward slash what I learned to get involved and start your supply chain journey to a brighter future. One thing I just want the audience to take away from Pete's journey, I, when I meet remarkable people like Pete, there's always sort of a consistent theme in that they're super curious and they're willing to work super hard. And so you can hear that trajectory of Pete's life, but none of that was really by accident. It may have been fortuitous, but he set himself up really well in one example and the next and the next, and then got referred. And now he's built this big, great network. I just encourage everybody listening just to, to make sure that you stay curious and, and learn as much as you can about the business and work hard and good things will come your way. It's a really interesting business. Um, Pete, I'm going to switch gears a little bit because I wanted to do a little bit of conversation around, you know, what I call innovations. I just um, we can take this any way you want to go. But you, P Pete's also got an incredible breadth of information. He, he doesn't just know about the logistics industry. He studied sort of world trade and world events because really everything in supply chain is impacted by the rest of the world. So Pete's become a student of the globe in addition to a student of the trade. So one of the things I, I recently listened to his podcast, and it was interesting because when we talk about innovations, Pete can talk about anything from what the metaverse will do to uh, supply chain, which I find interesting. Um, uh, suggestions for customs on how to tr how to reform trade, and then also fusion and what fusion can do for the world. So I just give you that breadth of things that Pete can discuss. Anything in there, Pete, that you want to talk about from an innovation standpoint? Any one of those topics or all three of those topics? Just kind of get a you get a sense of where do you think things are headed from an innovation standpoint? Yeah, you know, we'll start with a, a response to that, which is there's never been a more fascinating time to be alive. There was a period of time in the early 20th century when we really thought as a species we had finished 
we invented everything we could invent, you know, we invented man, we had, we had invented, uh, the cotton gin and the steam engine. So, Hey, you know, we must be done. Um, and, and I, I look, I look at, at, at all of humankind now, and I, I see this, this moment we're on the precipice of a change in science and the opportunities that come with it. We are, we are, but, but years away from having cameras on the surface of Mars and having, having the ability through, through virtual reality goggles from being able to experience that from our living room. And, and, and imagine this for a moment, being able to experiencing it with, with, with a short lag through virtual reality be in your living room, but your consciousness will be on another planet. And we'll be able to explore the universe, this bag of meat that you live every day in won't be able to handle that, be able to experience it virtually through these machines that we build now. And that's positively beautiful and incredible. And I see all this science and all this technology that we're building. And I know that it's trade professionals, people involved in compliance that will be protecting it, that we're making sure that all the, the different things about trade compliance that are associated with it will deal with the licensing that will deal with all the, the different government agencies associated with it. It'll be people in our industry that will move it. I, I also see this, um, it, it's hard, right? When you see people playing video games on virtual reality, that's, that's not even a scratching the surface, right? It's, it's being able to have um, a look through virtual reality, how to train people. The first time I saw someone with virtual reality goggles fix an engine by having the area of the engine that was broken pointed out to them by a service mechanic and then having the video on the side start to show them how to go about fixing it and you know being able to or it's it's positively incredible what these things can do for you to have a surgeon be able to call up information to help them understand and uh, heads up displays about what's going on while they're actually working on a patient that the integration of man and machine is terrifying to me but at the same time it's also uh invigorating if you look at every major leap of our industry of logistics it has always been um you know preceded by a leap in innovation so you, you and, have and maybe you could bring that home for us pete you know one of the things yeah. that i think about because i am more I, i'm more more into a supply chain than logistics so i think about it from the standpoint boy if i had virtual reality tied into my suppliers manufacturing my products out of vietnam and I could suddenly pop onto that assembly line and see what was being manufactured and answer a quick question. Or would you like your box this way or that way? Or would you like your product to be stitched this way or that way? I think that becomes kind of interesting. That 8,000 mile distance that's always separated that suddenly becomes like you're talking about Mars. I'm, I'm just talking about another country on this planet. What do you think? Imagine go even go 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 micro rather than macro because that's what i my biggest failing as a thinker is i tend to think on a bigger scale than a smaller one when the smaller one is probably the one that's easier to do you know simple scales and um and complicated fails usually so think about this imagine imagine someone you and i right so where are you at right now where are you physically? I'm in dallas i'm in dallas oh I'm a Texan man. I was, you know, I was born in Lubbock, right? So I, I ah, real yeah, Texas. I, yeah, uh, yeah, no kidding, real Texas man. Dallas just needs to fall into the earth. So, um, so uh, you know, and I'm in New Hampshire, right? Which is a pretty bizarre place in and of itself. But imagine if you and I were using virtual reality to manipulate a product. 
So we're manipulating something that we're working on, like a sample of something that we're working on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we finish it. We're like, okay, now, now this, I like the way this looks. And both of us have a 3D printer and then we print up a sample of it. You know, we print up a mock-up of it yeah. physically. So after we get a reality, we can look at it and like, that's pretty good. And, and you say, hold on, let's go back. I want to make a couple of changes. We go back in this reality where we can mock and play with it. And now we're done. And then we send that sample to our customer who also creates a mock-up of yeah. it. Right. And can collaborate that way. The, during the pandemic, you know, I'm an entertainer, man. And when you when you take someone like me and have them talk on a video all day long, it was it was hell for me. But I think this is kind of it's good and it's bad. Being able to interact with people one on one and feel that warmth and that energy is wonderful. But I've been in these virtual environments. I've had conversations with historical figures based on intellectual, you know, artificial intelligence, and it's incredible. But to have it with real people where we can interact in a way that's actually, you know, it's productive, it's going to change everything, absolutely, positively everything. And it will change this industry. Couldn't agree more. Maybe one other example, and then I want to move on to just like kind of supply chain tech industry and what you see winners and losers there. But yep. the other one that's interesting to me, Pete, and it's new, so I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but um, are you following chat GPT at all? I am. Yeah, I am. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, so I think it's, it's, everyone's saying it's going to make our kids dumber. I think anytime we put a kid in a position to use technology and they use it on us and they fool us, it's proven we're the dumb ones, not them. So let's, let's start with that. Right. Uh, second of all, I'm wondering if we can build it so it can talk to my customers for me so that I don't, you know, I'm kidding. I'm kidding on that one. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked it took us, took us this long to get it to work this way. Uh, and now well, it's just getting started too. Like they, they, they peg its IQ at about 90, but they're saying 4.0 is going to be at about 120, wow. which is what you need to pass the bar. Right. So, um, but I've been using it like crazy, right. I'll just for research, it's incredible. So I yeah. just wonder what you thought. And yeah, I just think in our industry, things like classifications and duty rates and so forth, lots of things that, uh, be interesting to have the, all the world's information uh, available as your research assistant, right? So let's take classification as an excellent example. I have, I have no doubt in my mind that you will eventually get a piece of technology that is able to classify a product to a 10-digit level that will live up to the basic logic and tenets of the tariff. Where it is bound to fail is when you come up against someone from customs. The problem with, with that particular example in our industry is I have had lengthy conversations with learned, brilliant engineers to come up with a 10-digit harmonized tariff code. And after that conversation, after writing it all up and papering it up, we've agreed on this 10-digit harmonized tariff code. I've been convinced that we've used the proper logic stream, and they have convinced me based on their you know, incredible insight that it's correct. Really? Then, yeah, then someone from customs comes in with a degree in horticulture and says, nah, I don't think so. So you can use all the logic you want, baby. But when we all get down to it, it's it's customs who many times is going to make an irrational decision based off of past rational decisions. In a world where new content is created every second, it can be tricky to find what you're looking for. 
The Lab is a resource platform designed by importers for importers, packed full of content to help you learn and grow your supply chain operations. Access articles, videos, and webinars on demand and listen to the latest episodes from the hottest supply chain podcasts around. Start your journey at mercadolabs.com forward slash the lab. And I go back to the days when Yolanda Masi, who worked for me, Michaels, had one of those big books sitting on her desk and the buyers were coming over and asked her to get the duty rate for their weeds and beads yep. at Michaels stores. And man, they'd spend all day, her and the woman from Fritz, going through that. So just things like that, I, I'm guessing that there's a lot of stuff that we can move that into a different level. We're really looking into that deep horticulture example that you gave, right? Absolutely. Oh, I love that stuff. Yeah. So one, I, we've only got on this time flew by fat, way too fast, Pete. I hope I can have you back. Um, but w- just one more question I want to ask related to technology, not so far on the extremes. When I look at what happened in the last couple of years, because I'm in this space, Pete, there was a ton of money being poured into supply chain technology. Everybody saw the industry blow up and VC money was flowing in this business like crazy in a good way, in a bad way. Some some things got started that wouldn't have got started. Other things got uh, overhyped. But if I gave you a couple of examples that I would say are, are maybe at the top end of that valuation, I'd love to get your perspective. So one company that raised a ton of money and they did a lot of good things, was uh, P44. Another company that raised a ton of money is Flexport. Any perspectives on either one of those? And and not necessarily related to how much money they raised, but what they've done with it. What do you think of the outcomes yeah. of one company that raised a billion and the other one raised two and a half billion? So you're just trying to make sure that we get a lot of eyeballs on this by because you asked the one guy, right? Uh, Project 44 is, is, I think it's fascinating. Yeah. I have a lot of friends that don't have... I'll be very honest. I have a lot of friends that don't have a lot of respect for Project 44. I do. So anytime that we can come up with something that's going to link up a lot of data and and be able to just aggregate it and, and hand it to you, I'm a fan, baby. So, yeah, me too. I, I'm, uh, a I'm, fan of I'm a fan. Um, Flexport is, you know, it, to me, it's it's like, and I've, I've alluded to this many times, they love to talk about how they're changing everything, baby. Um, but it's, it's like when my kids listen to some, some piece of new music and, and, and I say to them, you, you realize that this is, this is a remake, right? Like this is, it's just a cover band. Like this is, this is just somebody else playing a song that someone in my generation did 30 years ago. Right. And it was great back then. I mean, you're not doing anything special. You're just doing a really good job of making people think that you do. Now, there are things that they're doing that I think it's incredible. Their OS being sold to large agent networks overseas and you know being the, the platform the base that's fantastic good for them but this idea that what they're doing is revolutionary and changing the game come on man like and if you honestly think that these 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 massive companies like the robinsons of the world and the expediters of the world and all the money behind them will not squash you like a bug because they have the network and they have the volume you're crazy. They've been doing these things all along, and they've been doing it with a crap ton of freight, with massive customers, and they've been doing it well. I find it insulting that these digital startups roll out and say, we can do it, we can do it better, and you're not even close because, I mean, let's face it, our technology is just better. Really? Then why do you have all these people behind it cleaning up the mess after you do it? I'll give you a slightly different perspective, and only slightly. Oh, please do. Well, I've been, I've been doing this for a long time, Pete, as have you, and 
I agree with your first part of the statement completely. We were doing purchase order management for JCPenney back in 1988, right? And we had Eagle Link at APL doing track and trade. So agree, agree, agree. We 35 years ago, you said 30 with the band. I'm going to say 35 and one up yet. The one thing that, that I saw, and I don't know if you would agree with this, is that a lot of the technology for those companies was pretty inwardly focused. I always thought they could have done a much better job on providing that technology on an externally facing basis. And frankly, when I first heard about Flexport, that's what I was really hoping they were going to deliver to the marketplace is a much better way for customers to do business generally, provide them with features and benefits through technology that they couldn't get elsewhere. Because a lot of that stuff with phone calls and can't find my freight and the carrier's late, you know, that still exists. So I, I don't know if you have any any thoughts on that. I do. I do. The, the problem with this outward facing with all the, the UI UX stuff is it requires a tremendous amount of collaboration yes. between all the players. And it's just not going to happen because no one trusts one another. And until you have some sort of entity in the middle, which I tried to do with a group called the Known Alliance, until you have a, a, an organization like a non a nonprofit organization who sits in the middle, who gathers that information and it becomes an intermediary that everyone trusts, and it can't be the government because we don't trust them. But in, until there's somebody in the middle, this will never work. It will always fail because this company doesn't trust that company, who doesn't trust this company, who doesn't trust that company. As long as there is absolutely, um, you know, th there's really no reason for us to get into the mix together. It will always fail yeah yeah so that's a great perspective i haven't thought about that another reason i enjoy your perspectives okay we just got a couple minutes left i want to make sure that we can sort of let people know how to get in touch with you pete so yeah let's you share your socials with us where do we find <clears throat> pete Menzo? oh so man you can podcast your instagram handle your email yeah, whatever yeah, you yeah. feel like sharing I'm it, it's, it's very rare i go a day on linkedin without posting something so please hit me up on linkedin and get me on twitter at trade geek uh and then i have a lot of content so every week on monday my my uh partner doug draper and i do global trade this week um global trade this week we talk about what we think is gonna happen in the industry not what what has happened and we've done some pretty crazy predictions that have come true um also just about every week i drop uh, the uh, trade geek podcast we have a new season out it's going to be insane and then of course every other week for the transported asset protection association uh, tapa americas we do trade school and i'm very very proud of trade school so every other week live we have a live training where we talk about everything from import and export compliance, duty minimization, foreign trade zones, to trade policy, economics, logistics, and geopolitics. Um, and you can find about all those things on LinkedIn. My email is P-M-E-N-T-O, P-Mento, at trafficTech.com. Love to hear from you. Hit me up anytime. On that note, please hit Peter. This is the guy that's the most knowledgeable that I know about all things trade, not, not just anything specific, but how it's done globally, the future of it, if you want to learn about this business, hit him up on one or all of these channels. You'll love it. <laughs> Pete, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. As always, I really enjoy this, and thank I really appreciate you being here. Have My a great pleasure. Day. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Pete. First Things First is a production of Mercado Labs hosted by Rob Garrison. It is produced by Kaylee Hansen and Jazz Newberry and is created in partnership with Let's Talk Supply Chain. Voiceover by Courtney Shane. Our executive producer is Simon Lodge. As always, a special thanks to our live guests and audience.